Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. While studying in Italy, this vibrant 20-year-old English foreign exchange student was the victim of a horrific crime. What followed was an international media circus that led to several arrests. However, the official narrative will put another woman in the forefront, creating new harms and overshadowing the true victim in this case. This is the Meredith Kircher story. Hi, Megan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, and welcome to season three of Women in Crime. I can't believe it. I know. I'm thrilled. I love this show. I do, too. Yeah. And we have a lot of other shows in the works, but this is my baby. This is our favorite. Yeah. I can't lie. All right. So before we kick off season three, we have a few supporters to thank. Okay. Who do we have? I'm so excited. Well, we have Tiffany W. from New Jersey, who loves our accent, by the way. I don't have an accent. I don't understand what people are talking about. You do. I'm fine. All but right. thank you, Tiffany. We also have Hillary. Hillary is one of my fave names. Oh, yep. that's nice. And we have Heather in Indianapolis and Amy M. from New Hampshire. We also have Whitney A. from Lexington, Kentucky. And Megan, how cool is this? We have Usima, who is an avid listener from Uganda. You're kidding me. This might be our first patron from Uganda. That is so cool. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Yeah, it always blows my mind, the kind of support that we get. And we just really have to thank you all. The support means so much to us. It means so much to the show. And it's the reason why we can keep bringing you uh, great women in crime episodes. Thanks for listening around the world. All right, this episode is devoted to the murder of Meredith Kircher, as she was the primary victim in this case. Now, much of the media attention, however, focused on one of the people who was accused of Meredith's murder, and that, Megan, is Amanda Knox. And I would bet that many people listening right now know that name probably more so than they know Meredith Kircher's name. Oh, I would think that's a guarantee. Yeah. We did, in fact, have an opportunity to interview Amanda herself. We will be releasing that interview in a separate episode. That is already available on Patreon ad-free right now. For the rest of our listeners, the Amanda Knox interview will be released next week. Now, Amanda has been asked so many of the same questions before over and over again. So we wanted to take the opportunity we had to speak with her to address the aspects that she rarely talks about. So we hope that you find this new approach interesting because I can tell you we definitely did. All right, Megan. And now on to our first episode of season three, the Meredith Kircher story. Meredith Kircher was born on December 28, 1985 in southern London, England. And Meredith was the youngest of four children. She had a sister, Stephanie, and two brothers, John and Lyle. Growing up, Meredith played many sports and she was considered a very popular girl who was intelligent, sweet, and also a little bit on the shy side. She had attended private school, 
where she did very well. And after graduation, she attended the University of Leeds in West Yorkshire in England. By the summer of 2007, Meredith was a 21-year-old third-year college student studying European studies with aspirations to work for the United Nations. With the fall semester approaching, Meredith traveled to Perugia, Italy. Now, that's in central Italy. It's north of Rome and south of Florence. Megan, have you been there? No, but I've been to Florence. This is where she had signed up for a study abroad program with an emphasis on European politics and Italian coursework. She arrived in Perugia on September 1st, 2007, and she moved into an apartment. Actually, they call it a flat. So she moved into a flat with three other women. Among them were two Italian women and one American. The two Italian natives were Filomena Romanelli and Laura Mazzetti. These two women were a little bit older than Meredith, more established. They were already, you know, working. They were done with school. But the fourth roommate was similar to Meredith, and she was also an exchange student. Her name was Amanda Knox, and she was 20 years old. Amanda was from Seattle, Washington, and she was studying linguistics. By all accounts, Meredith was really having a great time in Italy. She had a lot of friends. She was doing great in school. She was working at a local pub and also working as a tour guide. However, less than two months after arriving in Italy, tragedy would strike. On November 2nd, 2007, at approximately 1.30 in the afternoon, one of Meredith's roommates, Amanda, came home to their shared apartment. Amanda was returning home after spending the night at her boyfriend's place. And right away, she saw that the front door was unlocked and open. So she wasn't too alarmed. She thought maybe one of her roommates had, you know, left the house quickly, maybe forgot to shut the door. You know, sometimes, Megan, if you don't latch a door, the wind could blow it open. Yep. Or maybe even something as simple as someone ran in for one of her roommates had run in for something. Um, not a big deal. However, when Amanda got to the bathroom, she also noticed a small amount of blood in the bathroom. Now, this is just a few drops in the sink. And she really attempted to just rationalize it by assuming that the origin was innocuous. Amanda had recently gotten her ears pierced, I read somewhere. So maybe she was thinking that was from her or maybe one of her roommates had cut themselves shaving. I can understand why she didn't think too much of it. I I mean, this is not going to be totally uncommon unless, you know, I saw a pool of blood or a crime scene, you know, a couple of drops, a couple of marks, four girls, women, you know, female issues. You know, this could easily be explained. And then she also noticed there was a mark on the rug. It was a little larger and more brown in color. Mm. Again, she's noticing these things, but nothing's really alarming her until she goes into the other bathroom in the apartment and she noticed that there was feces left in the toilet. And this made her feel uneasy because she says that she knew none of the women that she lived with would fail to flush the toilet. Now she starts wondering, is someone in the house? And she gets an eerie feeling. The combination of the open front door, the blood in the bathroom, the unflushed toilet. She's starting to feel a little concerned, perhaps a little scared. At this point, Amanda left the apartment to head back to her boyfriend's place, who lived very close by. And then the two of them headed back to the apartment together to see what was going on. She also had called her roommate Philomena at this point. And Philomena was pretty concerned and said, can you kind of see what's going on? It seemed that Amanda may have been a little more flippant about it. That's probably how I would be. And maybe you would be a little, you know, everyone's kind of different on the urgency in these situations. Sure. Amanda's boyfriend was 23-year-old italian native Raffaele Solicito. Now, you hear this name pronounced many different ways. And Megan, as you know, I do not pronounce things great. So please uh, bear with me here. What? I've never heard that about you, Amy. <laughs> yeah, no one's ever said anything in any of our never. reviews about that. Amanda and Raffaele had met less than a week prior at a classical music show. 
but they had spent nearly every moment together. So Megan, you remember being young and even if you, you know, you meet this new guy and you're hanging out, every day feels like a month, right? Yes. So, you know, it's young love. They were only together a couple of days, but as it's described, they were very much in love and spent every moment together. Right. Raffaele grew up in southern Italy, and he was living in Perugia studying computer science at the nearby university. When the two came back to the home, they were looking around and they noticed a broken window in Filomena's room, which was very clearly a sign of a break-in. Raffaele called 112, which is Italy's emergency number, to report what was going on. Meanwhile, Amanda began calling her roommates. As I mentioned, she had already spoken to Philomena. She tried to call both of Meredith's cell phones. Now, Meredith had two cell phones. She used one for international calls and one for local calls. You remember before cell phone technology was where it is today. That was very normal. The two roommates who were the Italian women were both away because it was the beginning of a holiday weekend. Now, November 1st is an official holiday in Italy called All Saints Day. So Amanda had spoken to Philomena a little earlier. So Philomena rushed back to the house with her boyfriend. She wasn't too far away and she was really concerned. You know, again, it was her room that had appeared to have been broken into. So she was worried that something may have been stolen and she really wanted to see what was going on. She actually would search her room and inadvertently she was kind of all over the crime scene, but more on that later. Nothing seemed to be missing. It seemed like things were in a disarray, like someone might have been looking through things, but there were like computers and other valuables, you know, laying in plain sight. And you can see pictures of Philomena's room online. Megan, have you ever heard of the postal police? Here, like the U.S. inspectors, the postal inspectors? So in Italy, they do a bit more. They are a unit of the state police, and they're responsible for mostly investigating crimes that are, of course, surrounding the postal sector, but also technology and cyber crimes. Why were they called into this one? Yeah, good question, right? Why were they called in? Well, they actually had recovered Meredith's two phones discarded in a neighbor's garden earlier that day. Oh, I see. So there are some conflicting reports on this because most outlets state that initially the police were there as a result of the found phones because they looked to see who the owner was and it was traced back to that address. In other words, the timing was kind of just coincidental. Why is this even worth talking about? Well, because Amanda and Raffaele thought that they were there in response to his emergency call. So there may have been a little bit of miscommunication right from the start. Regardless, the group starts looking around the home. So now you have the postal police, you have Philomena and her boyfriend. There was possibly another friend or two, and then Amanda and Raffaele. All I'm hearing is contamination, contamination, contamination. But Yes, and because the postal police aren't, you know, they don't know that this is a crime scene. It looks like it might be a crime scene, but no one's basically, we haven't revealed what the crime is yet other than a possible break-in. Yeah, so that's what everyone's looking around for other signs of forced entry. They try to go into Meredith's bedroom. And they noticed that her door was locked. And both Amanda and Philomena said this was a bit abnormal for Meredith. But also, these women have only lived together, you know, less than two months. So Mm -hmm. we don't really know exactly what people's habits are. Mm -hmm. But either way, they want to know why it's locked. And they want to get in that room to see if there's any other signs of a break-in. Right. So Philomena's boyfriend kicked down the door. Wow. And this is when chaos erupted. Amy, why is it that her boyfriend is the one kicking down the door and not the police? I knew you would have that question. And I know once I give you the answer, you're going to say that makes total sense. So the police would have, they claim that they would have needed a warrant to do so. Oh, I see. I'm not sure that this is true, but recall that they were the postal police. 
So maybe they just felt like it wasn't like part of their jurisdiction. That's possible. Maybe they didn't think it was because, you know, you can kick down a door in like exigent circumstances. Maybe they didn't know if it was. So maybe it's just like at least someone who has the right to be there. Or maybe they didn't want to have to pay for damages for breaking a door. I mean, that could be the case too. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So no one wanted to wait for the police to get a warrant or whatever else. Mm -hmm. So, of course, her boyfriend just said, "Okay, I'll kick down the door. So he Mm -hmm. kicks down the door. Everyone immediately starts screaming in Italian about the horrific scene. Meredith's mostly nude body was lying on the floor, wrapped up in a duvet blanket, covered in blood, and she was very clearly deceased. Hmm. Now, overall, this crime scene was horrific. There was blood streaks and spatter covering the floor and the walls of the room. And the police at this point made everyone leave the home and they quickly called in the homicide squad. But this is after, as we mentioned, there's a lot of people kind of roaming around, which is now very much a crime scene. It was soon determined that the night before, on November 1st, sometime between 10 p.m. and 12.30 a.m., Meredith Kircher had been sexually assaulted and murdered inside her own bedroom while she was home alone. Now, we don't know that much about what went on that night, other than Meredith had spent some time at a friend's house nearby. They actually watched The Notebook, they ate dinner, and then she came home. We know that she spoke to her mom sometime, I think around 9 p.m. There was also CCTV footage that showed her walking home. I am not sure why reports put the time of death between 10 and 1230 a.m., but that's what I kept seeing in all the official documents. Well, I mean, I don't know how the precise window was, but I'm sure they were using like, you know, liver mortis, rigor mortis and other measures to establish a window. Yeah, that makes sense. Meredith had sustained two principal knife wounds on her neck and a few smaller knife wounds on her face and neck and also a few wounds on her hands. There were also several bruises found on her face, her neck, her elbow, her arms, her hands, her lower extremities, and at the back and the top of her skull. Mm. So we're talking about a big fight here. Yeah. In total, there were over 40 wounds between the bruises and the knife wounds. The bruises on Meredith's face, particularly around her mouth and nose, may have been an indication that the perpetrator was possibly trying to prevent her from screaming Mm -hmm. by cutting off her air supply or otherwise restraining her. A post-mortem exam would also reveal that Meredith had been sexually assaulted. As would be expected, well, let me ask you, Megan, who do you think the police want to talk to the most? Her boyfriend. Yeah, of course. They're looking at boyfriends. They're looking at people close to her, right? So she did have a boyfriend, Giacomo. Um, They had started dating very recently. And very quickly, they were able to figure out where he was. So no one was really looking at him. So now they're turning their attention to who's the next person they probably want to talk to. Uh, I'm going to assume Amanda because she's the one who was first on the scene. Yep. So Amanda came home to the crime scene. And remember, Amanda lived with Meredith and the two other women were out of town. So this is someone who was very close to the victim who also shares a space with her. Right. They definitely look at roommates in the inner circle. And we would expect this. However, they really focused in on Amanda very early on. Now, this was largely based on her stoic affect after the body was found. Now, investigators found it curious that she was the only one who wasn't hysterical at the scene. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this for a minute. Why wasn't she hysterical at the scene? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. I mean, we talk about this all the time. People have different reactions. People process information, grief, trauma. Very differently. I mean, she could have very easily been in shock. And simply, as you said, we cannot judge people's affects in traumatic situations. End of story. End of story. I think it's also important to note, though, remember, Italian is not her first language and everyone's screaming in Italian. 
Amanda and Raffaele did not see the gruesome crime scene. Right. They just heard people yelling and then they were ushered out of the home. And right. a lot of reports say they actually had no clue what was going on. They didn't know that there was a dead body in that room. Right. Because they weren't in the room. I remember they were in the living room. Correct. So the media, I'm sure you recall this, the media captured a video of Amanda and Raffaele comforting each other on the driveway. Oh, I remember this one. You know, they were cuddling and kissing a little bit, and many judged it as odd behavior for someone whose friend has just been murdered. And I don't know that this is for sure, but I think it's too interesting to not talk about. I read that some of the media actually played it on a loop to make it appear that the two were kissing and cuddling for a long period of time, although it was maybe just one or two embraces. I remember that as well. I think you're right. Wow. Talk about the media skewing perceptions, too, and and reality, distorting reality. Oh, this is just the beginning of what the media did in this case. Right. Spring is in the air, and that means it's time for a refresh. I'm talking about luxuriously soft and stylish loungewear, pajamas, and bedding from Cozy Earth. I'd live in this loungewear full-time if that was an option. In fact, it's pretty much the option right now, just so you know. I actually have a couple of sets of the bamboo pajama sets. I have both the long sleeve one for when it's a little bit colder, and I have the short sleeve one. Because now that I'm pregnant, I'm sleeping a little bit hotter these days, and between The short sleeve pajama set and my bamboo sheets, my sleep is like a dream. You literally can't go wrong with Cozy Earth. And the reason why is because Cozy Earth products are made with soft, temperature-regulating viscose from bamboo. This is the secret ingredient. My favorite products are the sheets because the sheets are my every night sleeping. I have finally found the sheets that I sleep the most comfortably in, and especially because I sleep and that's what I need for a comfortable night of sleep. Best of all, Cozy Earth products come with a 100-night sleep trial. That means that you can sleep on it and wash it for up to 100 nights. And if you're not in love, you can return it for a full refund. Fall in love with everyday luxury at Cozy Earth. Go to CozyEarth.com and enter our promo code CRIME, C-R-I-M-E, at checkout for up to 35% off. That's CozyEarth.com, promo code CRIME. So already they're kind of looking at this American woman who seems to be, you know, cold and just not concerned that her roommate had just been murdered when, in fact, she did not even know at this point her roommate was murdered. And they called her uh, often. They were, they were they kept referring to them as friends. They weren't really friends. I mean, they weren't enemies, but they weren't really friends. They didn't know they each were other that friends. well. You know, yeah. it wasn't like if I lost you or you know what I mean? I think it's just to put it in, in that also context. Correct. The media, I think, also misportrayed their relationship. Another reason that investigators were looking so closely at Amanda is early on, the prosecutor had walked through the crime scene and declared that a woman must have been involved since the body was covered. Now, there's two things to unpack here. Number one, why is the prosecutor walking through the scene, you ask? Because yeah. <laughs> that was my first question. Yeah. Well, at first I was questioning that, too, and I did some research on Italy's criminal justice system is quite different from ours, and that will come up a lot in this episode. But one of the main differences is that their prosecutors often direct the investigation. They're effectively in charge of the investigation and somewhat are overseeing the police. Okay. So this was not necessarily strange. 
However, I think it's strange that he so quickly declared that a woman must have been involved because the body was covered. Why do you think he even said this? I think it's a, a you know a gender stereotype that a woman would be more caring or considerate, and that's why she would you know after a horrible murder still take the caution to cover up a body. I think that's one of those like it's a false assumption, and it'll all it'll produce is false leads. Speaking of false assumptions, the prosecutor also said, you know, Meredith was a strong girl and she would have been able to hold her own. So there must have been more than one attacker. So very early on, it is made known that there's more than one attacker and a woman was involved. Now, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I think these conclusions are like not really based on anything, you know, scientific or anything we know about crime stats. So. And I do not believe that the prosecutor even knew the victim. So who was he to say that she was a strong strong woman? And anyway, we know people who are extremely strong, black belts in karate, and they still can be victims. It doesn't matter how strong you are. Plus, I think the majority of victims, of female victims, um, are usually at the hand of a single perpetrator. Suspicious on Amanda, the media starts combing through her social media pages and taking everything out of context. Now, at this point, we're talking 2007, they were looking at her MySpace. You remember MySpace? I do. So they're looking at every picture and scrutinizing. I'm not even going to get into the pictures mm-hmm. because it's it's ridiculous. There's no reason to waste our time talking about it. But what came out of this was the nickname Foxy Noxy. I remember that. Yeah. So Foxy Noxy is, I think most people who have heard of this case have heard of Foxy Noxy. Do you know where that even originated from? Yeah, high school thing or no? Yeah, it's actually middle school. I read that she was a really strong soccer player. Mm. And the nickname was given to her by her middle school soccer teammates because she was quick on the field. Quick like a fox. Get it? Foxy Noxy. Totally taken out of context. Yep, because the tabloids were quick to assume this nickname must have reflected her obsession with sex mm-hmm. because in Italian, it translates to cunning slash evil fox. Ugh. So they're building this persona, this character of Amanda as a seductress. And as you would expect, the public immediately became enthralled with this persona of this beautiful American seductive killer. In the past, we've talked about confirmation bias, and I think it's safe to say that this case really does illustrate confirmation bias at its finest. Now, every single thing that this woman did was seen as a way to confirm this moniker that was given to her by the media. So anytime she was affectionate with her boyfriend, which was a way for her to get support, she was in Italy without any family or friends, really. So of course she was turning to Raffaele. I'm sure you recall when the media took pictures of her buying underwear. Yes. And they were quick to say that her buying underwear just showed how, you know, sex crazy she was. Yeah. When in fact, this poor girl could not get into her apartment to get clean clothes. Right. And that's why she was buying underwear. Right. I even feel like we're spending too much time on this because this doesn't deserve time because it was so ridiculous. The media also got word on some what they considered strange behaviors. At one point, Amanda was seen doing yoga stretches while she was in the police station. And another point, she was sitting on Raffaele's lap giggling. Some people said she made a crude comment when some of Meredith's friends were saying, you know, I hope she didn't suffer. And Amanda shouted out, well, of course she fucking suffered. And again, I don't think this shows anything other than someone's personality, right? None of this information is indicative of involvement or guilt in any way. Zero, right? But because of the way that Amanda was being portrayed, a ludicrous theory emerged that Meredith was killed during a sex game gone wrong. 
That included both Amanda and Raffaele. Yeah, I remember. It seemed that Amanda had the world against her. Rather than becoming empathetic toward this young woman's plight, the overall public attitude was against Amanda, and it was purely based on dramatized nonsense. And so while all these stories were running, and within just a few days of the murder, law enforcement were conducting harsh interrogations of both Amanda and Raffaele, of course separately. And neither one of these young suspects had an attorney with them. Hmm. Besides the fact that this is troubling just for the fact that Italian law, similar to U.S. law, says that you have the right to have an attorney present during interrogations. And also the effectiveness of the police interpreter would also come into question. I was going to say the language barrier alone would have would have terrified me. So at this point, it's very clear that they're just not gathering information for their investigation, as Amanda initially thought. So Amanda thought, yeah, she's a roommate. I'm going to help as much as I can, tell them anything I can that would help them. Right. But now it starts to become clear that she is the prime suspect in this case. On November 6th, during the course of a two-day interrogation, Amanda eventually crumbled to the pressure. She provided a confession implicating her boss, Patrick Lumumba, as well as placing herself and, by extension, Raffaele, at the scene of the murder. Her confession was written by the police and she signed it. It was written in Italian, though. And again, that's not her primary language. Mm-mm. She was well-versed in Italian. She was studying Italian, but... She wasn't fluent, is what you're saying. Yeah, she was not fluent in Italian. She's in a foreign country. She's less than proficient in the native language. She's hungry. She's tired. She's being yelled at. And so this confession emerges. And it was the result of really an intense interrogation. Amanda says that during the interrogation, they just kept screaming at her to remember, remember. And at certain points, they would also slap her on the head. So almost immediately after providing an account of what she said was really just patchwork, incoherent memories, some of them false memories, she ends up recanting very soon after. But at this point, the police don't want to hear that because they got what they wanted. Right. So based on her, quote, written confession, Amanda, along with Raffaele and Patrick Lumumba, were arrested. So Patrick Lumumba, now who is he and how did he get dragged into this? Well, Lumumba was Amanda's 37-year-old boss at the bar that she was currently working at. And the two had only known each other a short time and they, you know, had a pleasant working relationship. Mm -hmm. He was brought into this because the evening of the murder, he and Amanda were texting with each other. Well, Amanda was spending the night at Raffaele's home and was potentially going to work that evening. She received a text from her boss, Patrick Lumumba, who said, you know, don't worry about coming in tonight. It's a slow night. To which she wrote back, you know, have a good night. See you later. The police saw this and said, oh, this is the other person who was involved because she said, see you later. See you later. I was just going to say that see you later, which is a common term, was going to be the thing they would latch on to. Yes. And remember, we're talking about a different culture. Our see you later in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is a bit different than see you later in Italy, which I think was taken a bit more literal as I will see you later. Okay. Whereas in the U.S., we just say, yep, see you later. Have a good night. Yeah. After the confession, the police didn't even tell Amanda that she was being arrested. They told her they were taking her to a safe house. In fact, they took her straight to jail. How? She had no idea what was going on. She didn't even know she was being accused of murder. She didn't see a lawyer at this point even. The first time Amanda actually sees a lawyer, Megan, was when she was informed of the charges against her and she was asked to plead on the spot. So could you imagine having no time to process what's going on and not even know that you are arrested until arraignment? No, I, I can't imagine the total 
fear, shock, everything. And, you know, at the same time, Patrick was seized in front of his family and he was thrown in jail, too. And he had no idea what was going on. And Raphael also, right? And Raphael, he was already in custody. He was just further detained at this point. When we talk about Patrick now, this is going to be a spoiler alert, but he had nothing to do with this. This was the fault of the investigators because other than coercing the confession from Amanda, they didn't corroborate anything from her story or do any further investigation. Luckily, he was released because there were several alibi witnesses who came forward. He never left his bar that evening, and there was no one who said he was anywhere but at that bar. That's silly. They they could have easily just confirmed that before. uh, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It was such sloppy yeah. police work. They didn't do anything. Also, there was zero evidence of him at the crime scene, and they tried hard to put him at the crime scene, but he had never stepped foot into that home. Right. Now, Amanda and Raffaele weren't so lucky. In fact, more, quote, evidence, it has to be in quote, because I don't even consider this evidence, was emerging that was working against the two. The investigators were searching for a murder weapon because we know how important a murder weapon is to an investigation. Mm -hmm. And they could not find one anywhere at the scene. So they decided to head to Raffaele's apartment to look for one. And of course, they found what they were looking for because they discovered a knife in a kitchen drawer that seemed to be consistent with Meredith's wounds. The police claimed that this was the knife that was the murder weapon. This was on the basis of no scientific testing at this point. Mm -hmm. It was the only thing that they could find that looked consistent with Meredith's wounds again. In addition to this, the media was continuing to vilify Amanda. In a particularly low period, the number of men that Amanda had slept with, which was taken from her private diary entries, was published across different media outlets for the world to see. So icky. As if that's not bad enough. Do you know how they got this list? No. This list was produced after law enforcement falsely informed Amanda that she had tested positive for HIV. I do remember this. Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) They used this as a tactic to get exactly what they wanted, which was a list of men that she had slept with so that they could further build their story about who they believed her to be. That's about as unethical as I think it gets. As if that isn't bad enough, Meredith's name was barely mentioned in the headlines. Everything was about Amanda when Meredith was the victim in this case. I remember that too. And what about Raffaele? No one really heard about him. Many people, in fact, believe that Raffaele was just at the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was a victim of Amanda. He was under her, quote, seductive spell. Oh, my gosh. The narrative here. Yeah, that's how far they were taking this narrative. And now a third suspect emerged, a local man by the name of Rudy Gaudet. This is another name you'll hear pronounced in a few different ways. Now, Rudy Gaudet was a 20-year-old man who was friends with the men who lived in the flat below Meredith and the other women. Now, how did he get thrown into this? After all, he wasn't mentioned in any of the interrogations. Amanda nor Raffaele ever mentioned him, and neither did anyone else. Well, he became a suspect after a bloody fingerprint was discovered at the crime scene, and it was identified as belonging to Gaudet. Which means he had a record. You would think, right? Oh, okay. So at first, I thought that as well. But it turns out they had his fingerprints on file because he wasn't born in Italy And all immigrants get fingerprinted when they move to the country. Okay, I see. So that's why they had his fingerprints on file. Okay. The police, of course, tried to contact Gaudet for questioning, but they could not locate him. It seemed as if he had fled the town. So he has a bloody fingerprint and he is gone. 
Okay, doesn't look good for him. Oh, that is just the beginning of it, Megan. So they end up talking to his family, his friends, anyone they could. And they ended up having one of his close friends come to the police stations and call him on Skype, of course, with the police listening into the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Now, the full transcript is pretty interesting. It could be read online. I just highlight a few parts that stood out to me. Mm -hmm. So during this call, Rudy initially tells his friends, quote, you know, I knew the girls. I knew them both, but nothing more. I've been to their house twice. I didn't do anything. I have nothing to do with it. I wasn't there that evening. But if they found fingerprints, it means I must have left them before. So he says, you know, he was there a few days before all this. Okay. However, just a few minutes later into the conversation, he admitted to being at Meredith's flat that evening, the evening of her murder, mm. saying that he had seen her the night before when they were all out for Halloween. And the two had made plans to hook up the next evening. Okay. So he says, as they had decided, he would go over there. He goes over there that evening. They hook up, but the two did not have sex because they could not locate a condom. He says he went to the bathroom. And while he was in there, he heard Meredith screaming. At this point, he ran out and he saw a man. Now, listen to this. He said that the person wasn't bigger than me. I mean, taller. He wasn't really taller than me. His back was turned. I saw Meredith bleeding already. She had a slash in her throat. The guy took a knife and I have wounds on my hand because I grabbed his hand. He tried to stab me and I still have wounds on my hand. They're healing now, but I still have them. And then he continues, I tried to help her. And if my prints are in the house, it's obvious because I touched everything. So wow. very incriminating, very incriminating. And he also uh, the police are very happy about this part. He also told his friend that he had fled to Germany because he was scared. So now the police know at least what country he is in. Mm -hmm. Megan, you asked about his criminal history before. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to that for a moment because there were numerous media reports that said that Goudet had a history of drug crimes, but I could not find any evidence that he was ever convicted of any such offenses. Mm. However, one week prior to Meredith's murder, he was caught by law enforcement in Milan while burglarizing a nursery school. Wow. And not only was he in a nursery school when he wasn't supposed to be there, he was carrying a large knife, which he had stolen from the facility's own kitchen. Oh, geez. I wonder if that's yeah. a murder weapon. During the same encounter, he was found in possession of a laptop and cell phone, which had been reported stolen from a local law firm. Also, they found a woman's gold watch, which had been reported missing during yet another burglary a few days prior. And most importantly, the manner in which he entered and burglarized those establishments were similar to the manner in which Meredith's flat was broken into. Mm, okay. So that is breaking a second story window by throwing a brick or a rock through it. Wow, very smooth. Even more information emerged as police interviewed people who knew Rudy. He had no legal employment, no permanent housing, no familial or other support systems. And he was described as both a drifter and someone who lacked direction in life. An acquaintance of Rudy also indicated that he was not very successful with women and he greatly desired a girlfriend. Mm. A few mutual friends also said he was briefly interested in Amanda at one point, and some say he did show interest in Meredith as well. Now, Rudy was 20 years old at the time of Meredith's murder, and he originated from Ivory Coast, which is a country located on the south coast of West Africa. Mm -hmm. So he came to Italy with his father around the age of five, and he became a naturalized Italian citizen. He did have a very abusive relationship with his father, who ended up leaving his young son in Perugia to return to Ivory Coast. 
Rudy did have a tough start. He lived with several foster families until adulthood. And then his most recent foster family had apparently abandoned him in weeks prior to Meredith's murder. Mm. So it was following the occurrence of the second abandonment that Rudy began that spree of break-ins. I mean, these are all classic signs of like escalation in an offender, right? Absolutely. So besides those fingerprints I mentioned earlier on, DNA from the crime scene had also matched Rudy's. On November 19th, Rudy Gaudet was apprehended by German law enforcement while riding a train in which he failed to purchase a ticket for. They were kind of eyes out for him. And then Mm -hmm. he made the mistake of getting on this train without paying. They ran his name and they found out that Italy was looking for him. So he was quickly extradited back to Italy. Mm. When questioned by police, Rudy claimed to have had a consensual sexual relationship with Meredith. However, by all accounts, she barely knew him. They, you know, they met in passing because he was friends with the neighbors who lived downstairs. And during his bathroom break, she was murdered by two complete strangers. Exactly. seems really logical. I mean, why do you think like he had to say that they had a consensual encounter? Because there were signs of sexual assault. And I mean, he had to cover that up. Exactly. And he knew that his DNA and fingerprints were there. Yeah. He had to be able to explain that because he couldn't lie and say he wasn't there. Right. Also, the autopsy report revealed that she suffered forcible intercourse, making Mm -hmm. his story even less plausible. So other than his DNA being found inside Meredith, it was also a sign of not just intercourse. It was forcible intercourse. Got it. Now, clearly, Rudy Gaudet was not in a good position. He was confronted with the irrefutable DNA evidence. I think it's really important to really have our listeners understand just how much evidence they have against Rudy Gaudet. Overwhelming. Overwhelming. You didn't even hear all of it yet, and it's already overwhelming. Okay. So obviously we have the DNA. The DNA was found inside Meredith's body, his handprint in Meredith's blood. It's in her blood, his handprint, found on a pillowcase underneath her body. His DNA, along with Meredith's blood, was found on Meredith's purse. His shoe prints soaked in Meredith's blood were found both in the bedroom and in the hallway leading out the front door. The DNA, remember there was um, fecal matter left in the toilet? Let me guess. It matched It matches DNA. And do you remember he told the police that part? So it's almost like he was setting yeah. up yeah. the story with the evidence that was there. Oh, yeah. He also had scars and scratches reflecting defensive wounds on his hands and on his chest when he was arrested. And of course, as we mentioned, he was caught fleeing the country days after the murder. Right. Given the mountain of evidence against him, Rudy opted for what is known as a fast track trial. Have you ever heard of the fast track trial in Italy? No. Basically, it's proceedings where the trial phase is pretty much absent. It's shorter. It's simpler. There's usually no witnesses called. And it's just the prosecution and the defense arguing about evidence that's present in the case file. Interesting. It's almost like... Similar to the idea of plea bargaining yeah, in the sense that, you know, it's not that he's admitting guilt, but he's foregoing the trial. He's making things easier on the court for what I believe to be a lower sentence. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it would be maybe not exactly the same, but I understand the comparison. Now, this was a good move for Gaudet, obviously, with all that evidence against him. And it also kept him separated from the combined Knox-Salicito trial because he continued to implicate both of them and maintain his innocence. So those two were tried together, and he didn't want to be tried with them. He wanted to be kept separate. Gouday's trial began on October 28, 2008, and nobody really cared. It was not televised. The media was not talking about it. His story wasn't the interesting story, right? Right. At his trial, Gouday elected not to give evidence in his own defense. In other words, he pled what we call the fifth. 
Because in Italy, just like in the U.S., defendants have the right to remain silent during all court proceedings if they choose to do so. And that's exactly what he did because he knew there was just nothing he said could have helped his situation. So Rudy was charged with sexual assault, murder, and theft, and he was sentenced to 30 years. You know, I would have liked to see a life sentence, but 30 years is, it, it seems like an appropriate sentence, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I would have liked life, but but it's not a totally inappropriate sentence. But two years later, his sentence was decreased to just 16 years. That's what I remember. Why, though? Okay, so he ended up appealing his case. Yeah. They didn't reverse the case, but during his appeal is when they reduced the sentence. I see. Okay. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's very interesting. Let's put Rudy aside now. So Rudy gets, you know, he gets his 30 years. Two years later, he gets 16 years. The prosecution, the media, the general public, everyone's just forgetting about Rudy and much less about the fact that he was convicted of committing the murder of Meredith. It's like people just ignored the fact that this had even happened and there was barely any media coverage. Like you would think there'd be headlines like Rudy guilty of murder of Meredith Kircher. I would have. Nope. The headlines were still focused on Amanda. They continued speculating wildly about this tabloid created phenomenon that was known as this Foxy Noxy. So I don't even want to say Amanda because it wasn't even Amanda. It was this idea of this person that they created. Right. The widespread belief at this point was that Amanda was the ringleader. She, along with Raffaele and Goudet, were involved in a sex game gone wrong. So remember, they the prosecution now had to say, OK, so Rudy's found guilty. So we must bring him into this now. It must have been Rudy along with Amanda and Raffaele. The logic would have thought, oh, we caught the real perpetrator, so we don't have to. But now they're, I've seen this happen before in a couple cases where they felt they had to tie them together. Yep. They just dig their heels in deeper instead of admitting that perhaps they had gotten it wrong. Tunnel vision at its finest. (sighs) Yep. So Rudy's convicted. Let's move on to Amanda and Raphael. As you could imagine, this whole ordeal was awful for them. While in prison, Raffaele suffered extreme trauma. He was placed in solitary for about six months. Wow. I think you would agree with me. It's likely it was for his own safety, given the nature of the crime. But I don't I don't really know how the prison system works in Italy. But I would guess that. Right. He also had, you know, severe depression, suicidal ideation. Amanda, as well, had a very difficult time during her incarceration. Mm -hmm. Think of all the deprivations that come along with incarceration. On top of that, being in a foreign country, I I could not. That's what I was thinking, being away from the family. And of course, on top of that, being innocent, right? I mean, she was lucky, as she talks about in her memoir, you know, her family and friends rented a place nearby and they took turns visiting her. And, you know, she did have a few people in the prison who were kind to her. Never once did Raffaele or Amanda waver. They adamantly denied any involvement. And of course, they pled not guilty to all charges. Their trial began on January 16th, 2009. Of course, we're talking about a different criminal justice system, Italy versus the U.S. Similar to us in Italy, defendants are innocent until proven guilty. But there are some really kind of key differences. The main difference that I want to, I guess, highlight between the two systems is that in Italy, they don't have a jury trial. It's not a jury of an individual's peers. Usually during trial, there's a panel of judges. Usually there'll be one senior judge and two junior judges. Sometimes panels go up to six judges, but typically a panel of three judges. Now, for serious offenses, a defendant does have the right to have a panel that also includes citizens, but it's not a jury of one's peers. And it's also not unanimous. It's majority which is, you know, quite different from our system. Very different. You know, we can 
teach a whole semester course about the differences between these two systems. We don't have time for that here, but it is important to note that that plays a big role in what's going on here. Now, the prosecution during trial contended that Amanda was the one who attacked Meredith in her bedroom, and she tried to strangle Meredith, hypothesizing that all three, Gooday, Knox, and Solicito, held her down while Gooday sexually abused her. Because again, they had to explain how right. Rudy Gooday's DNA was inside her, but no one else's. And then they said that Amanda had cut Meredith with a knife before inflicting the fatal stab wound and that she had stolen the phones and money to fake a burglary. This was absurd. And during trial, they even played a cartoon animation that was based on zero science and just a bunch of speculation. Now, remember that knife they found in Raffaele's apartment that I mentioned earlier? Yes. Tests would reveal trace evidence of Meredith's DNA on the blade and Amanda's DNA on the handle. Now, this would become a big point in the trial for the prosecution. Other than that physical evidence, the only other physical evidence they had against the pair was that Raffaele's DNA was found on Meredith's bra clasp. Now, this was found days later at the crime scene. So just keep that in mind. You mean when they had both been in the house and everyone had been? Yeah. Yeah. When we get to the appeal, we're going to kind of break down those pieces of evidence a bit more. But this trial, this trial was so long. It was almost a year long. You know what I found interesting is in Italy, the courts take off for summer break. Well, the courts shut down a lot here, too. I mean, they don't shut down like uniformly, but the judges, I mean, most judges are out. Like most things don't happen in July and August here. But Amanda describes this as, you know, the trial started in the winter and then things are going along and then they get to June. They just stop. And everyone kind of goes on holiday, June, July, August, and they come back in September. Well, that wouldn't happen here for a major (laughs) trial. So no, regardless of the lack of what I would consider credible evidence, on December 4th, 2009, Amanda Knox and Raffaele Solicito were convicted for the murder of Meredith Kircher and sentenced to 26 and 25 years, respectively. Amanda was also convicted of slander against falsely accusing Patrick Lumumba earlier on. Mm. There were several proceedings that follow, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to just quickly go over them for the sake of time and simplicity. Okay. So the appeal trial, just like in the U.S., in Italy, they have the appellate court. It's a little different because they can present new evidence to a three-judge panel. Oh, okay. So in our appellate courts, you cannot introduce new evidence. Not right away. You can get back into appellate court later on, but in your initial appeals, it has to be restricted to what happened at trial. So you're you're appealing not on, you know, the grounds that you're innocent or on new evidence. You're appealing on the grounds that there was an error at the first trial, whether it be jury misconduct or ineffective counsel. Mm -hmm. The appeal trial began in November 2010 when the court ordered a review of the DNA evidence So they brought in independent experts who noted serious errors in the gathering and analysis of the evidence. Now, lucky for them, the crime scene process was mostly videotaped. So you can actually see this Mm. in the videotape that investigators did not change their gloves Mm -hmm. or their booties in between touching things or going into different rooms. The crime scene was not secured. In fact, that bra clasp that I mentioned earlier that had Raffaele's DNA that was not even found initially. That was found days later, like under a piece of carpet. So it was a piece of the bra. So this is basically cross-contamination here. So much cross-contamination. I mean, I'm talking like picking up evidence with a pair of gloves, putting it down, and then picking up another piece of mm. evidence with the same gloves. Terrible. Like crime scene 101 stuff. So these new independent experts concluded that there was no meaningful trace of Kircher's DNA on the alleged murder weapon, as previously stated. Remember that knife they found? Right. Now, we would expect the knife to have Amanda's DNA on the handle. 
she was almost eating all her meals at Raffaele's house and they mm-hmm. would cook often. Mm-hmm. So what people couldn't get past was why was Meredith's DNA on the blade? Right. Well, it turns out that like it was such a trace amount that they couldn't say it was definitely Meredith's. They could say Meredith fit in the pool of people in which it could have been. Mm, that's not the same. So it could have been Meredith's, but it could have been any number of other people. So experts were testifying that the evidence strongly suggested contamination, which was highly probable given the lack of care at the murder scene. Also, even if they did find Raffaele's DNA on Meredith's bra clasps, that doesn't indicate his participation in the murder. No, it doesn't. Besides the fact that the crime scene was contaminated, he was also in that house. Of course. So it could have been, you know, the bra was in the laundry with clothes that had his DNA. So regardless of the fact that this was a mess, I still don't even think that should have been strong enough to convict him anyway. Right. On October 3rd, 2011, Amanda and Raffaele were declared innocent on appeal and were released from prison, again, due to the contamination of the scant forensic evidence. Now, this was the evidence that was instrumental in implicating them during the first trial. Remember, Amanda was also um, charged with slander of Patrick Lumumba. Yes. That was upheld. Okay. After her first acquittal, Amanda immediately returned to the United States. And I really urge everyone to read Amanda's memoir called Waiting to be Heard. Other than the fact that it's just written so well, it really goes through all of these different points in time and really helps you understand just how difficult this situation was for Amanda, Amanda's family, Meredith's family, Raffaele's family. This affected so many people. So Amanda returned to the United States, but of course, it was still possible. And a lot of people really believe that, you know, she was going to be recharged again. And a lot of people believe she was guilty. So she's living with that label here. Absolutely. She said, I remember um, in one of her interviews, her saying how she, you know, went back to college and people would take pictures of her. And, you know, everyone was looking at her. Some people thought she was guilty. Some people didn't. But either way, people were just like intrigued by who she was and really gave her no privacy. Right. On March 26, 2013, the Italian Supreme Court overturned the acquittals and ordered the case back to the appellate level. So they're worried that, wow, they they could be found guilty yet again. Now, Amanda um, had refused to return to Italy this time, and she was actually allowed to stay in the U.S. while, you know, the case was being processed back at the appellate level. I would have refused to. Where was Raffaele? Raffaele was still in Italy. That's where his family was. When they were declared innocent on appeal, he was also released as well. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you ask that because Raffaele also got like pushed to the side in all this because mm-hmm. everyone was so fixated on Amanda. On January 30th, 2014, the appeals court reinstated the guilty verdicts for both Amanda and Raffaele, insisting that more than one person had to have committed the crime with Rudy. And if it wasn't them, then who would it be? Oh, my gosh. Really? So again, Amanda and Raffaele appealed their reinstated guilt verdicts to the Italian Supreme Court. And finally, on March 27, 2015, they were fully exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court. Wow. And I think it's very important to note that the courts made it clear that these two did not commit the murder and they were fully innocent. Now, the reason I say that is because some people say, oh, well, there must have been a procedural error mm-hmm. or some other reason. But no, it was not on any error in trial, any error in procedure. It was 100 percent 
on the fact that these two were fully innocent of the murder. Got it. I would love to say this had a happy ending, but first of all, nothing will bring back Meredith and her family and friends will forever mourn her loss. And that is the sad fact here. Mm -hmm. Her funeral was held on December 14th, 2007, but Meredith Kircher's memory lives on. The degree that she would have received in 2009 was awarded posthumously by the University of Leeds, and there's also now a scholarship in her name. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to read it, but her father, John Kircher, wrote a book about his daughter that I urge people to read that I myself will be reading as well. I've heard really great things about it, and I think it's important that we hear from the victim's family. There's also um, the Netflix documentary that everyone should watch called Amanda Knox that was released in 2016. And it really highlights the media and, you know, the way they vilified Amanda. Unfortunately, Meredith's family did not take part in the Netflix documentary. Mm. It would have been nice to, you know, hear from them. But it is clear that Rudy Gaudet single-handedly is responsible for Meredith's murder. And I think we can both agree that his sentence was too short. But Megan, even worse, he got out even earlier than the 16 years. Oh, that's right. I remember that. After just 13 years, he was released. Totally inappropriate. And that was actually just last month. On November 24th, 2001, after just 13 years... Rudy Gaudet was released. This is not justice. There's one injustice <laughs> no. after another. Even more infuriating, for the last three years of his sentence, he was given partial prison release and was working in a library of a criminology center where I believe he worked when he got released. So, Megan, we're talking about just 10 years of a full custodial sentence. I am still shocked. Yeah. And... Worse yet is that he still maintains his innocence and blames Amanda and Raffaele and even publicly apologized to Meredith's family for not being able to save their daughter. How low is that? Well, that doesn't surprise me, to be honest. You know, he, he always denied that and he always placed blame on others and he had a story. So, I mean, I don't believe him. Meanwhile, just a quick word on Raffaele. He completed a degree in computer science through the University of Perugia while he was in prison. Since he's been released, he published a memoir. He's been on TV as an expert commentator, mostly since he's been released. Oh. Unfortunately, in 2017, he lost a lawsuit against the state in which he sought compensation for the four years he spent wrongfully in prison. But, I can't believe he lost that. I know. But he's now an author. He lives in Milan and he is married. And, you know, he seems to be doing okay, given the circumstances. Right. Okay, so we don't need to talk about really um, where Amanda is today because we will hear from her personally in our next episode. She is a criminal justice reform activist who does amazing work in the area of wrongful conviction specifically and criminal justice reform generally. And Megan, as you know, I'm a huge fan of her podcast, Labyrinths. Yes, I know. So before we get going today, Megan, and thank you for sticking with me through this long episode, mm -hmm. of course, we need to talk about some theories. I think overall, this case highlights several important issues with the criminal justice system and really society as a whole and how we vilify women. Mm -hmm. But of course, we could spend days deconstructing this. But rather than doing that, I just want to highlight a few items. And then, Megan, of course, I want to hear your thoughts. Okay. So many people tend to doubt the legitimacy of wrongful convictions or presume that they are extraordinarily rare. Well, Megan, you know this is my area. Mm -hmm. uh, just a few stats to frame the issue for our listeners. So according to the National Registry of Exonerations, they're an organization that collects, analyzes, and disseminates information about all known exonerations, really just looking at 1989 to the present day. 
And according to them, almost 3,000 people have been exonerated. Let's put that in perspective. That's more than 25,000 years lost to wrongful imprisonment. Wow. So I, I think, you know, just I really wanted to just highlight the gravity of the issue. So there are many factors that lead to these miscarriages of justice. And Megan, we've talked about these in past episodes, like eyewitness identification, junk science, official misconduct, tunnel vision. And of course, many are relevant to this case. But I think the one that sticks out the most here is false confessions. Mm -hmm. Now, many people, and I know most of my students when I teach the class, many people assume that people do not confess to things that they did not do right? It seems counterintuitive. Yeah. However, research shows that about a quarter of all known exonerees have been wrongfully imprisoned due at least partially to a false confession. Right. So let's break down Amanda's false confession. So this confession could be understood in two ways. The first one, which I think probably could explain it best, would be the coerced internalized false confession. Now, these are statements that are made by an innocent but vulnerable person who, as a result of exposure to highly suggestive tactics, confesses to a crime that he or she believes that they actually may have committed. So it gets to the point in an interrogation where someone's broken down to the point where they start questioning really their sanity and they think maybe, you know, this was so traumatic that I blocked out the memories. I've heard that in a number of cases. So she was clearly vulnerable, right? She was in a foreign country. She wasn't fluent in the language. She was young. She was young. Yep. The police constantly lied to her, you know, she just wanted to talk to her mother and they kept telling her like, yeah, you could talk to her, you could talk to her. But at one point, her mother even arrived in Italy and was calling Amanda's cell phone and they wouldn't let her pick it up. Can you imagine like literally she saw her mom calling and she couldn't pick it up? No. The situation also has aspects of what is known as a compliant false confession. Now, this is when a confession is given in response to police coercion or stress or pressure. And in this situation, the confession is really given as a way to escape the interrogation process, as a way to get out of a circumstance that you're not comfortable in. Right. Or sometimes people do it to take advantage of like a promise of leniency or to avoid a harsh punishment. I don't think that's the case. But I do think Amanda was clearly in a coercive environment. She was hungry. She was tired. She was confused. From what I understand, she was interrogated over many days for a total of about 50 hours. That's a very long time. Theories that can explain Rudy. I know we say this one a lot, Megan, but I think strain theory, of course. Rudy clearly had the inability to cope with, it seems like, that second abandonment by the family. That also ties with social bond theory. How so? Because what I heard from you is that, you know, we know that social bonds are what keep people from committing crimes, but... Rudy lacked the big ones, um, ties to his family, ties to a stake in conformity. So what did he have to lose? Really nothing, no job. So I'm going to say that, you know, strain definitely might have played a role, but I think his lack of social bonds are what probably allowed him to commit crimes. I agree. I wonder if strain is almost like like the straw that broke the camel's back by that last abandonment. Right. And then it was like social, social bond, social control. You're right. He didn't have a significant other. He didn't have a job. He didn't have no. a family. No, I heard no social bonds from him. And then I, and I thought of that immediately. Before we talk about if the system got it right, which I think is going to be a quick conversation. Any other theories come to mind? Um, with Amanda labeling theory. Oh, so yes. I believe that Amanda was given a label immediately of this, you know, like you had said it before, kind of like a, a, a sex potter or a thirsty, temptress, seductress like. So I think that she was labeled and I think that explains why 
um, how they interpreted all the evidence in in terms of kind of this label that was placed on her. Yeah. Which explains her wrongful conviction. Yes. I think it's clear that the system did not get it right, given that Rudy was the sole perpetrator of this heinous crime and he only spent 13 years incarcerated. And further, Megan, he's only 34 years old. Like he hasn't aged out of crime. I would say he's probably an ongoing risk to society based on his chronic criminal history, Mm -hmm. his current young age and his lack of remorse. He has refused to take any responsibility for Meredith's rape and murder and continues to falsely implicate to other people. Right. So I don't think this is any indication that he has been rehabilitated. No, I already said my opinion earlier. This was one injustice followed by another. And I don't think that this will be the last crime he commits either, unfortunately. Something else to tell our listeners, because we like to give take homes, is uh, whether domestically or internationally, it's crucial for everyone to know their constitutionally granted legal rights within the nation that they are in. Oh, yeah. And this is paramount that you know them proactively because no one ever thinks they're going to be in this kind of scenario. Um, Organizations such as the ACLU recommend carrying a card on you at all times, which outlines your rights. Mm. And another suggestion by the ACLU is if you are overseas, immediately request access to your embassy prior to remaining silent. Oh, that's good advice that I didn't know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget, be sure to listen next week's bonus episode of Women in Crime, which will be an exclusive interview with Amanda Knox herself. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include The Guardian, BBC, New York Times, Netflix documentary Amanda Knox, The European Journal of Women's Studies, Newsweek, Injustice in Perugia, Waiting to be Heard, and our exclusive interview with Amanda Knox.